We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him, these are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? And in the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. For we have re- what, for what we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught by taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them, because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, But such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Thanks, Han. One of the things we always say to people preaching for the first time is don't start with an apology. But I need to start with an apology because I have really small ears. (laughs) So if halfway through you can't hear me, it's because these microphones are not designed for people like me with small ears. Anyway, let's remind ourselves of where we are. Like Hannah said, last week we were in John for our All Together service. Now we're back in 1 Corinthians, which is the series that we're doing together over the coming months, maybe even years. We'll see how long it takes us. So this letter is written to the city of Corinth, to the church in Corinth, 2,000 or so years ago, written by a man called Paul, But Christians believe that Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit of God in what he wrote. And so Paul is writing to a church that is somewhat divided. You know, they've they've found Jesus, they've found this truth about Jesus and they love it. But there are divisions among them in terms of who they kind of listen to, who their favourite leader is. And, And there are divisions within their hearts Some of them are kind of attracted to their former ways, a bit like Natan was sharing with us, and I'm sure many of us can identify with that. They'd they'd found Jesus, they'd found this way of life, but then the ways of death were calling to them, so they're divided. And it's a church where most of them are from kind of no birth, that's the word that's used, and I really love that because I really connect with that because my family is like nothing in the world's eyes. So there's this church full of people, you know, kind of no status. 
But I wonder if maybe over time some of them had almost become attracted to the status they could get within the church. Maybe they're nothing in the world, but maybe they can be somebody in the church. Humans love status. For the last four years, I've been involved in local politics. I've got about four and a half weeks left of that involvement. But one of the things that I've come to realise is that you could set up a pencil sharpening society and within weeks there'd be fights over who is the chair of the pencil club. We just love to be in charge, to have status, to have respect. And so even if we've come into faith in Jesus, we've, we've come from nowhere and God's lifted us up out of that, there can be this desire to have status, to be respected. And so in that context, in that place, Paul has been laying out the wisdom of the cross and contrasting it with the wisdom of the world. The wisdom of the cross isn't something that we can kind of grasp hold of and make a profit from. It's not something that's going to add status to our lives. It really shouldn't be. In fact, the cross can take away our status in the eyes of the world. Following Jesus isn't something that necessarily gives us benefit and status to the watching world. And so Paul's speaking in this culture that he knows is in awe of wisdom. It's the the culture of the philosophers. Pick your favourite philosopher and follow them. But this is what Paul said, and we, we looked at this a few weeks ago. In 1 Corinthians 1, 25, the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Now, if you're new to the Bible, if you're new to maybe the way that some things are worded, you might be thinking, oh, is, is Paul saying that God is weak and foolish? Sounds a little bit offensive. I don't think he's saying that. You know, we have a saying in English, um, someone's knee high to a grasshopper, which means they're very short. <laughs> now, in a sense, what this is saying is like, compared to us, even at the bottom of God's, God's wisdom Even the base of God's strength is far above us. We are knee-high to a grasshopper, and God is, of course, not a grasshopper. God is not foolish. God is not weak. But he is so much wiser than humans and so much stronger than humans. And aren't we glad that he is? So what is God's wisdom? For Paul, the kind of supreme place that we see the wisdom of God is at the cross. And the cross looks like foolishness to the world. I don't know what the symbolism of the cross is to you. It's maybe something that you see kind of outside churches, on a hot cross bun at Easter. In, In that society, the cross was a symbol of humiliation. It was a symbol of being crushed by the brutality of empire. It it was not a status symbol. It was an embarrassment. That would have seemed like foolishness to the watching world, but that was the wisdom of God, the Son of God on a cross. And so the passage that we're in today, it starts with a however. And that's the however that we're kind of looking back to. Because Paul's going to speak now about God's wisdom and how it's different from the wisdom of the age. This is what he says in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 6, the start of our passage. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. 
So he's speaking to the mature. And next week we're going to hear about immaturity. But let's think a bit about maturity. Maturity is not just age. You know, old cheese, old buildings, they can be the best. Or they can be the worst. You know, there's mature cheese and there's off cheese. They're beautiful old buildings and there are hideous, tumbling down, unsafe places not fit for human habitation. So age in itself is not maturity. Old people can be kind of grouchy and falling apart. I'm getting older and I'm starting to fall apart. But they can also be the absolute best. And and it's not actually guaranteed which way it will go. So maturity is something beyond just age. And it's relative. You might say that this particular six-year-old is really mature, but you're not going to put them in charge of the Bank of England. Although maybe they do a better job. Kids always want to be older, don't they? Until they don't. (laughs) We get to a certain age and then maybe we don't so much. But actually, when, when we're truly mature, we're not particularly interested in our own maturity, in our own age, in how we compare to others. God's wisdom is not for those who want to use it to lord it over others. And it says here, doesn't it, that the wisdom of this age is coming to nothing. And this age, when it talks about this age, it's not just talking about kind of when Paul was writing, but it's this eon, this kind of grand age of history. So it's the age that we live in as well. And that must have seemed quite strange to those who first read it, that these worldly systems would pass away, these systems that seem so powerful and mighty. The collapse of the Roman Empire would have been unimaginable. They'd combined that Greek culture with the might of the Roman army. And it felt like they were taking over the world. But they're gone. Genghis Khan is not with us anymore. The Ottoman Empire is long gone. And the sun has set on the British Empire. They said it wouldn't, but it did. All of these these systems, these empires, they all do pass away. And a bit later on in the same letter, we get a warning not to be drawn in to the wisdom of this age. Chapter 3, verse 18 says, Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you're wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. If we want to immerse ourselves in the wisdom of this age, and if we want to kind of declare and become wise by its standards, then we too are just going to pass away like it does. Let's think a little bit more about the wisdom of Paul's day. So just before the first time he visited Corinth, uh, he went to Athens. And I've just remembered that I was meant to be doing this. And Paul Xenia has been doing it all. So here we are. (laughs) Acts 17, verses 16 to 21. So Paul's in Athens waiting for his friends. And while he's there, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. And a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. 
They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we'd like to know what they mean. And then just a little bit of context here. So all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Does that remind you of anywhere? Cool. So Paul stands on this this Areopagus that was mentioned there. And it's a hill that you can go and stand on today. And it's overshadowed by this much greater hill, which is the Acropolis, which is where there were loads of temples and statues and idols in a city, Athens, that was dedicated to Athena, the goddess of wisdom and of war. And Paul's in Athens on the little hill, looking up at the big hill. And he says this, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And a couple of summers ago, Tim and I went to Athens and um, normally it's like absolutely manic, but it was in COVID times and it was kind of empty. So we had it largely to ourselves. Uh, But we went to the hill where Paul gave this sermon and Tim pointed out just that... um, what it kind of looked like on there. And I think we've got a picture somewhere. There it is, yeah. Um, so this here is the hill that he preached on. Got a little laser pointer for you. And this up here, this is the Acropolis. This is the big hill. This is all the temples. They're in ruins now. But at the time, they would have been incredibly impressive. And, you know, you sadly can go today to the British Museum in in London and you can see some of the things that were up there, although at some point, hopefully, we'll send them back where they belong. But, you know, Paul's on this little hill, looking up at this big hill, full of temples and gods in the city of the goddess of wisdom. And he says, you know, God doesn't live in temples built by human hands. He's presenting a whole different kind of wisdom to this city that loves wisdom. And there was a mixed reaction to what he said. And there's always a mixed reaction. So uh, we see this when they heard about the resurrection of the dead. Some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And at that, Paul left the council. So he left the Areopagus, that hill. And some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. And among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. So that's the backdrop. When Paul's writing here to the church in Corinth, remember Corinth is pretty near Athens by kind of uh, the standards of the day, I guess, and, and very much influenced by it. And Paul's writing to them about the wisdom of God versus the wisdom of this age. And he's saying that the wisdom of this age will pass away. And, you know, the photo that I showed you is ruins, right? <laughs> the wisdom of this age... It all passes away. Every system that sets itself up, it passes away. And I wonder what is the wisdom of our day? I think actually there are several different options for us. Nationalism. Identity politics. Atheism. Spiritualism. Consumerism. Conspiracism. Scientism. Picuritism. There are many systems that we can adopt that will give us a kind of big picture of how the world works, what it is, who we are, what is our purpose, what are we for. 
Pick your wisdom. And some of those things, you know, they're in, they're in deep conflict with each other, aren't they? We live in a pluralistic society. Around us, there might be different people who kind of subscribe to different ideas. And, and that was actually pretty similar then as well. You know, in, in Athens, the city of the philosophers, there were different philosophers with their different thought systems and there were different religions, different gods. That's why this hill was so full of all these different temples. You know, really similar to today. It wasn't just like there's one way and, and everyone agreed on it. And, you know, that list of the different kind of isms, the wisdoms of our day, we might be drawn to different ones of them. I've never particularly been that interested in nationalism. I don't particularly feel like I'm from a nation. That's not been something that's important to me and my identity. But actually there are other things that I can really kind of fall prey to. I find consumerism really appealing. I can get drawn into that as a system of life, a way to have the good life. It can be easy to see where other people are, but what about ourselves? How is the wisdom of this day kind of alluring us? What do we know about God's wisdom? How can we resist when people try and tell us that, you know, that the world's wisdom is, is what we need or, or maybe that even that it's God's wisdom? Because, you know, those examples that I gave, at times people have kind of tried to twist those things in with the truth about God's in this kind of corruption of Christianity, whether it's so-called Christian nationalism, prosperity gospel, therapeutic deism, there are these attempts to kind of bring the two together. It doesn't work. And you know, Christians believe in Trinity. That God is one, and God is three persons. And all three Persons of the Trinity are in this passage. Father, Son, and Spirit. And and if that's a bit confusing to you, maybe you didn't hear the word Father while Hannah was reading to us earlier. That's because sometimes in some of the passages of Scripture we see the word God uh, that's used to refer to Father God. But also here we see the Spirit of God and we see the Lord Jesus mentioned in this passage. And in this passage, God's Spirit is actually mentioned ten times a distinct person and the spirit of God. Because the wisdom of God is revealed and authenticated by the spirit. The wisdom of God is revealed and authenticated by the spirit. It says in verse 10, these are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. And that's how we can discern between the different claims that are made. If someone comes along and they say, oh yeah, actually, you know, Christianity really is all about racial purity. And that might sound abhorrent to you now, but people have tried to say that. People have tried to twist that into Christianity. So how can we know what is the wisdom of God and what is not? We need to be looking at the evidence of the Spirit of God at work. What do we know? How do we know where the Spirit is? Galatians 5, 22 to 23, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, 
and self-control. And against such things, there is no law. And you know, it's the fruit, not the fruits of the Spirit. It's not like some tree with like a banana over here and a pear and an orange there. This is actually a description of the fruit of the Spirit. All of these should be evident in a person who is filled with the Spirit of God. And you know, a lot of that is relational stuff, isn't it? It's, it's evidenced in how we relate to other people. That's where we can see the fruit of the Spirit at work. So spiritual wisdom is going to be found where the fruit of the Spirit is. And that's one of the ways that we can test the claims that are being made to us. Do we see that there? The fruit of the Spirit is not in hate, in bitterness, in fighting, in impatience, in meanness, in evil, in infidelity, in harshness, and being out of control. If someone is claiming to have the wisdom of God and they're exhibiting those things, the Spirit's not there. The wisdom of God is revealed by and authenticated by the Spirit of God. So I just want us to deal with an aspect of this passage that might have been a little bit confusing to you when you heard it. Because it talks about the wisdom of God being a mystery. In what sense is, is the wisdom of God a mystery? I think Paul's referring to something that actually Jesus himself said. So three of the Gospels record Jesus giving the parable of the sower and the seed. And when when Jesus gives that teaching, the people who are listening, they don't really quite get what's going on. What does it mean? And so after the crowd have gone, the disciples ask him, what was that about? And, And why are you so hard to understand sometimes? You know, sometimes people will say, well, Jesus spoke in parables. Because an illustration makes it easier for us to understand. That's true that illustrations can make it easier to understand. But actually Jesus himself gave quite a different reason for why he sometimes spoke in parables. Sometimes it wasn't actually to make it clearer for everybody listening. Actually sometimes it made it harder for some to understand. And they needed a revelation of God to understand what he was saying. He said this, so Matthew, you, you can read the, the, kind of the whole story of that parable in Matthew 13, 1 to 15, but here's where Jesus talks about the mystery. Matthew 13, 11. Where's it gone? Yeah, he replied, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom has been given to you, but not to them. And the word that he used where it says knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom is the mystery. So the mystery of the kingdom, the understanding of God, has been given to some, but not yet to all. So not everyone who listens to that parable understands it. The illustration's not making it clearer. Interesting. The you is Jesus' followers, and the them is the people who are just there for the fireworks and nothing else. So here's what I think Paul is saying, and I think this agrees with how Jesus uses that word mystery. Paul's saying that God is great, and that his ways are deep. They're deeper than ours. And we can only grasp what God is doing in the world through the revelation of Jesus that comes through the Spirit. In other words, you can't have the Father without the Son. And we know the Son through the Spirit. And if you're Christian, maybe you're like, yeah, that's really basic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There's a, I actually know how you do that thing, but there's a thing that we do, isn't there? The Trinity. But you know that, that belief, 
is not shared by everyone in our world, is it? We had Andy Bannister come and speak to us a few weeks ago here, and he was talking about how there can be this idea that, you know, we all worship the same gods, and we really don't. And he went into some of that. Not everyone believes that the supreme wisdom of God is demonstrated in the death of his son on the cross. Not everyone believes that the spirit of God is knowable and that the spirit of God reveals the things of God. That's not a universal belief. But mystery is not referring to some kind of secret Dan Brown-esque complicated thing that only the kind of initiates, the special ones, the really wise ones can grasp. Christianity happens in the open. You know, baptism is something that we do publicly. We don't do it out in the open here because it's freezing in this country. But, you know, baptism is not a private secret thing. It is on display. And mystery is not kind of Hercule Poirot, Miss Marple, trying to find out who killed Jesus, you know, on the cross, on the hill. It's not that kind of mystery that's being talked about here. Mystery is an older word. And it can refer to like a plan of God that is, that is known only by God, but then is being made known to people. So here's an example of it from the Old Testament, a prophet called Daniel. And he said, there's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. The king has had this dream that he doesn't understand. And he says, he's shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you were lying in bed, are these. And then he kind of goes on to tell the king what the king had dreamed and, and what it means. Because God in heaven had revealed the mysteries. God had his plans and then he was sharing them. So that's the message of this passage, that God's wisdom is different from worldly wisdom. God's wisdom is this plan that was prepared millennia ago and was largely hidden Although, with the Spirit's help, we can look back and we can see it in Israel's scriptures before Jesus. And that's why Isaiah is quoted here in this letter. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. It's the prophet Isaiah writing hundreds of years before. What Paul is saying is that Isaiah had grasped something of this mystery, this plan of God. And then the fullness of it is being revealed in Jesus. Those things that God had prepared for those who love him. So how are we going to respond to these words that Paul wrote? These words that were inspired by the same Holy Spirit that he's writing about. How are we going to think about wisdom? I don't think this means that we have to live kind of cut off from everything that human minds do. I haven't actually seen The Passion of the Christ, but um, I'm told that in that film, he shows Jesus inventing the dining table. I'm really sorry if this is going to burst your bubble, but he didn't invent the dining table. And actually, Jesus benefited from the inventions of other people. He wore sandals. It says it in the Bible. He didn't invent sandals. They, They were there already, and he just wore them. He stayed in houses built by others if you came here this morning along commercial road whether you came from east or west you'd have come under massive railway bridges built by human engineers if I want a bridge built I'm going to ask an engineer 
if I want to protect my feet from dust and stones and frost, I'm going to ask a shoemaker. These kinds of wisdoms, this kind of creativity and ingenuity and engineering that we see in, in humanity all around us, this isn't the kind of thing that Paul's talking about passing away. This isn't the kind of thing that he's talking about us rejecting. It's the systems of thought, the claims that this is what life's really about. Those are things that rise and fall, they come and go. And while they're rising, they can dominate everything. They can feel like they're never going to go. But they do. And if you, you know, if you, if you look back over the history of thoughts, things seemed so eternal at the time, and they weren't. Those, that's the wisdom of this world that's passing away. So this passage is not an excuse for like a Christian arrogance. It's not an excuse to say to the world, you know nothing, we know everything. It's not a basis for like reverse snobbery, competing to be the most stupid. It's not a basis for any kind of boasting, actually. I think Christians should be the opposite. Because we should be the ones who acknowledge that any wisdom we have, any spiritual insight, any truth, comes not because we ourselves are supremely wise or spiritual or intellectual. It's been freely given to us by God. This is what it says in verse 12. What we've received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. That the wisdom that comes from God is not like a stamp of approval. You've worked hard enough. You've studied hard enough. You're good enough. Here you go. You can have the wisdom, and now you can feel superior to the world around you. That's not what it's about. The wisdom of God is the cross, like a, the, the supreme example of humility in eternity is the cross and that's the wisdom of God. There's no, there's no space for boasting in that. There's no space for lording it over anyone. This is not meant to make us congratulate ourselves on our wisdom. So I think our response to this passage is to humbly apply the wisdom of the cross to the wisdom of our time. What does the cross say to nationalism? What does it say to consumerism? What does the cross say to identity politics? What does the cross say to right wing and left wing and the growing group of people who are no wing because they just feel let down by it all? What does the cross say to the wisdom of our age? And what's the wisdom that's around you at the moment? What what are the things that kind of dominate the thinking of the people that are in your life? What's the big idea? What's the thing that explains it all for the people that you love that don't know Jesus? I don't know. It'll be different for different ones of us. We're going to have to do some work ourselves here to think about what, what is the wisdom of this age and how does the cross speak to that? And as we evaluate the wisdom claims that Christians might make, Let's be looking for the fruit of the Spirit in their lives and in their relationships. I'm not going to take teaching from someone who displays gross anger. I'm not going to be taught by someone who is divisive, by someone who is malicious, by someone who is mean, by someone who is jealous. I'm not going to... 
that's, that's not the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God is authenticated by the spirit of God and the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. And there's a really good kids song, which is the only way I know that because we did it in Sunday school a few months ago. So that's how we can know the wisdom of God. We look for the spirit of God and we can't see the spirit. You know, I think Nat was describing earlier when he was in a car and there was something around him and often when people talk about an encounter with God it kind of goes beyond what our language can actually convey and those are my favorite bits in the Bible where you just get this sense that you've got a human who's like I don't have words for this the spirit of God is not something we can see like you see this lectern but we can see the evidence of the spirit and one of the main ways that we can see that is in the fruit of the spirit and the action of the spirit and that is what authenticates wisdom That's how we can know God's wisdom versus the wisdom of the world.